Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Matthew chapter 4. Go ahead and turn there, Matthew chapter 4. And I want to look at fasting. I want to continue on what we talked about last week. Uh, I just want to mention, last week when we were talking about fasting, and this is a very important point, so I want to press it home again, that a lot of people look at fasting as a legalistic thing. They, they're, they're hesitant to fast because they look at it as works, as if they're trying to earn something from God. Other people fast for that very reason, and they're going to find it unproductive. Fasting is not a matter of works, and we're not earning th- something from God. Fasting changes us, not God. Fasting is to change us, to align us more with his will. At the end of the message last week, I was sharing about how back when I first became the pastor of this church, we went on our first 21-day fast. It was 19 years ago that we did our first 21-day fast, and we were crying out to the Lord for revival. And in the midst of that crying out to the Lord, God gave me a vision of a, my mother's Tupperware Kool-Aid pitcher, burnt orange. And uh, it had a white lid that went into, and the, the, the picture was molded plastic. It had a handle molded into it. It had a spout. Some of you remember those. It had the white lid that goes in there, and you turn it. And uh, the, on one side, there was a, ho- a square hole. On the other side, just three little slits in case you wanted to slowly drip out that beautiful nectar called Kool-Aid. Uh, but you could, you could turn it so that if it tipped over, it wouldn't spill out. And the Lord showed me a picture of my mom's Kool-Aid pitcher, and he spoke this to me. He said, you are the lid on revival in this region. Now, I'm not arrogant enough to think that I'm the lid or the spout upon which revival is going to come to this region. But what God was doing is he was putting his finger on my chest and saying, what you are crying out for, you can be the answer, but you can also be the greatest hindrance to your prayers. And I saw his hand taking that lid and moving the lid to align the openness in me with the openness in him. Now, the openness in God was built, it was part of his very nature. He had a spout built into him. You know, that's the nature of God. God is desirous of pouring out his spirit upon us more than we want it. What he's looking to is create that desire and that alignment with us so he can do it. And so fasting is a way that God begins to align the openness in us with the openness in him. And so it's not a matter of works. We're not earning anything. And we talked about this. And and again, I I know I said this last week, but I really want to hit this home because I believe that this is one of the big apprehensions or the big hindrances to fasting, among other things. I had shared uh, a number of years ago, I had a pastor friend tell me, he said, I heard you guys fast a lot. Well, you know, I don't know what a lot is. That's a subjective phrase. But I said, yeah, we fast. And he said, I'm too rooted in grace to fast. And it's because he didn't understand what I'm about to tell you. Now, he's, he's a brilliant guy, very educated and a man of God. He's got a real walk with the Lord. I love the man. I deeply respect him. But he had a misconception in this very area. That the work of salvation, Jesus did it all. He paid the price. There is nothing left to pay. We are merely recipients when it comes to the ministry of Christ. We receive what he purchased for us. 
That is salvation, what theologians call soteriology, the study of salvation. But there's a whole other side to the Christian life, and that is, this has to do with your pneumatology, your understanding of the Spirit, as well as ministry. That's your relationship with God. This is about giving it away. And over here, we fill up in our body that which remains of the sufferings of Christ. There is a price to pay here. If we want to be used by God, there are things that we need to do. There are th- there's a price to pay in ministry. There's a price to pay to give it away. You could say it this way. Jesus paid for the product called the gospel, but there's delivery fees. Somebody is going to have to pay the price to get this treasure from us to others. And depending on your calling, there are, and there, depending on the season you're living in, the, the cost goes up and down at times. But we need to understand there is a price for us to pay. And so we're not talking about earning anything from God. Jesus paid it all. We're talking about changing us, being transformed internally so that we can become a conduit through which God can flow. And we're, talk about, we're also talking about engaging evil. Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and powers in dark places and and high places. We are engaging evil. There is a wrestling match that goes on to displace the enemy. Now, just let me pause there. Let me just plant a seed for you. Maybe we can get into this at another time. I think one of the great problems in people's theology is that we have only two pieces. We ha- we're missing the third leg of the stool of theological balance. We, have the, we understand uh, the, our theology, God. We understand his role. We understand our anthropology, man, our role. But there's another element, and that is demonology. There is a very real enemy. And when people don't take that into consideration, there's a whole lot of things that don't make sense that you've got to find somewhere, something to attribute all this junk to. And so we end up blaming God for what the enemy does or blaming the enemy for what the enemy, or uh, man for what the enemy does. And we have to have a balanced theology. The Bible's very clear. There is a personal evil. There are uh, evil entities with personalities and, and uh, very wise uh, entities, not wisdom in the ethical sense, the moral sense, but they are very intelligent beings that have been studying mankind for a long time. And if you don't have that as part of your grid work, you're going to be bumping up against things and become offended with God. You'll have to attribute to God those things the enemy is doing because you got to find somewhere to put this. Does that make sense? And so we need, to, we need to have a theology of God, a theology of man, and a theology of the enemy. And fasting does engage the enemy. Jesus said, these kind only come out by prayer and fasting. One time when the disciples came upon a, a demonized man, they, they went to cast the demon out of this individual And they had no such luck. And so Jesus told them, these kind only come out by prayer and fasting. There is a level of evil that is only removed by engaging in fasting. And it's not because we're earning something, but fasting digs our heels in to move that thing. So that's not so much what we're talking about this morning, but we need to have that a part of our theology. Does that make sense? 
Okay, I, I hope so, because I can't say it any clearer. So you're all kind of just looking at me. Okay, let's get into the word. Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Listen to that. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's an understatement. And it's not a coincidence that the text says he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Because I've heard people say, well, yeah, on the biblical fast, you only fast from sun up to sundown. Not, not necessarily. Depends on the type of fast you're doing. Jesus went on a complete fast for 40 days. I'm assuming he drank water. If he didn't, it was a supernatural fast. Some of you are thinking even to just eat smoothies would be a supernatural fast for 40 days. But uh, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry and the tempter came and said to him. So the enemy came at a moment of weakness. I'll tell you, fasting will engage you with the enemy. Not, not necessarily, not always on a grand scale regionally or, you know, uh, engaging those familiar spirits that afflict your family line and all those things. You can end up running into that. But even on a, just a personal level, the head games that will happen on a fast. And the enemy will try to come to you in a moment of weakness. So he says, uh, it says, he, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And so what happened is the enemy attacked Jesus' identity during the fast. In a moment of weakness, the enemy will always come after your identity. Because you live as a believer, the power is living from your identity. You've got to know who you are. Because if you're not living from your identity, you're not living, you're not living from the resources that you have. It was a number of years ago now. I was, sit, I was sitting right about here because this used to be the house of prayer. There was a wall right there and we had the house of prayer back here and I was all by myself on a Tuesday or Thursday morning. I don't remember which. And uh, it was in the middle of the morning. I was back here praying and the Lord suddenly spoke to me very clearly. He said, I have a, some of my leaders, how did, he, how did he put that? Some of my leaders have, I have an issue with some of my leaders, essentially, was it what, what it was. I'm having a little problem with my mind this morning. You need to pray for me. But he said this. He said, many of my sons wear the mantle that I have for them as an ill-fitting garment. But what they need to understand is that I am the master tailor. I sew it perfectly to their frame. But not to the stooped over man of shame still identifying with his past. I sew it to the one who stands confident and erect in my presence. In other words, there's a mantle. A mantle, scripturally, there's this symbolic a uh, picture of mantles that were the anointing that comes upon a man or a woman. And there's a mantle, it was a, it was a cloak, but it also represented the calling and the anointing. And the Lord is telling me, I have a mantle for each of my children. And I fit it perfectly to who they are. Every one of us have a different mantle. Every one of us have a different anointing. And only together do we have the fullness. But he's telling me that that mantle can only be worn 
if we're standing confident in his presence, if we're that stooped over man of shame still identifying with his past, then it feels like an ill-fitting garment. We feel like we're wearing Saul's armor as David when in reality we're not owning who we really are. Here's the problem. The problems that you will face can be dealt with with the anointing assigned to your life. But if you don't know who you are, you can't walk in that anointing. And it doesn't matter whether you know it or not. The enemy knows it. And he's going to throw those promises at you. But you only, the only way to deal with those is through the anointing. So if you don't know who you are and you're not walking in the anointing that you have, then you're going to be faced with problems you don't have the solution to until you find out who you are. And so we need to know who we are. And so we see this in this moment of weakness, and it's not a coincidence, just before Jesus is going to launch into his ministry, he has this intimate encounter with the Father in the river. He goes down in the water, he comes up, the heavens open, the dove descends, and he hears the voice, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. In this dramatic encounter he goes immediately from that, driven by the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tested of the enemy. And the enemy tests in the wilderness what he heard in the river. This is the way that God always operates. It's not what you hear in the encounter. It's what you endure in the testing of that word that you will come out with. There are a lot of people who hear things in an encounter that they never really walk in after the encounter. Because every encounter is followed by a wilderness testing where God's going to establish that thing in your life. And you've got to stand your ground. And so the enemy attacked Jesus in the area of his identity. But listen to Jesus' response here. And this is, this is fascinating to me. But he answered, it is written. That's a good thing to do. He responded with the Bible. But it's not just quoting verses, it's understanding what those verses mean. Is the word of God in you? Is it part of you? How many of you know Guy, Guy Chambers? Is, is Guy and Audrey here this morning? Or Guy, I, I'm telling you, every time I'm around him and I talk to him about the word, the word of God is in him. He can't help himself. He starts quoting chapters. It just comes out of him. The word of God is in him. When it's in you, it will come out of you when you're pushed. And so Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen. So what he's saying is, it's, it's not only physical sustenance that I need. I need a word from the Lord. And he quotes this Old Testament verse. But anytime you hear the New Testament quote the Old Testament, you need to go back to the Old Testament to see what the context of that comment was. And the context of it was Deuteronomy chapter 8. Go ahead and turn there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I want to show you that it is not a coincidence that Jesus chose that particular verse. And it has everything to do with 
what we're going to enter into in this fast. Look at Deuteronomy 8.1. The whole commandment that I command to you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give you to your fathers. Let me read that again. The whole commandment that I give to you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land the Lord swore to give you and your forefathers. So God has a promised land for us. He has promises. He has a debt. He has future. He has an assignment for you. But you must obey to enter into that. And then he goes on and he says this. And you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. So this is at the end of 40 years in the wilderness for the children of Israel. And Moses tells them, you must, you shall remember the whole way the Lord has led you. Not just part of the way. Not just the good, not just the pleasant. It's all good because it's all God. But not just the pleasant because it's not all pleasant just because it's good. Not all the pleasant and not just the unpleasant. Some people want to look at life with rose-colored glasses and they only want to remember the pleasant. And then when they bump into something unpleasant again, they no longer have the lessons they picked up from the last unpleasant one. There's others, however, that only look through the lens of the unpleasant. And they, either one of those are an imbalance. We need to be able to learn from the good and the bad that we go through. He says, and you shall remember the whole way the Lord has led you. Remember all of it because all of it were, there were lessons they could extract from it. We've touched on this again and again over the last number of months but I've, I've just felt it again, the Lord impressing this upon me. And I believe it's because the Lord is inviting us in, in this season, to understand his ways. Amen. Bible says that God showed his works to Israel, but his ways to Moses. Moses said, show me your ways that I may know you. You can know the works of the Lord, and you can go so far with that. But when you know his ways, when you, you can then begin to anticipate the way he's going to act. A big part of knowing somebody is knowing their ways. You become intimate with the way in which they operate. And there is a divine template by which God will orchestrate your life. And the more you know his ways from the word, the more you'll be able to apply it to your life. The answers we long for are in the book. That's why Moses said, you need to remember the whole way that God taught you. And you and I can go back and look at the whole way in which God led Israel. And we can learn applicable principles for our own life. And it can help us. And so he says, the Lord God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now let's just pause it. We'll, we'll go into that a little more. But I want to I ask you a question. Do you think it is merely a coincidence that the children of Israel were led by God, according to this, pa this passage, led by God in the wilderness for 40 years to have their hearts tested. And, and in a few moments, we're going to see the, where we get this verse, that, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
that it came from 40 years in the wilderness, and that Jesus chose that passage to quote when he went for 40 days in the wilderness. And that the children of Israel were coming out of slavery, and they were going to their promised land. But between their slavery, what they used to have, and what they were going to have, there was this hallway called the wilderness that they had to pass through to get into what God had for them. And Jesus went from a a private relationship with his father, unknown, was baptized, announced, and immediately was put into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tested of the enemy for 40 days before he would step into his own in ministry. Do you think that's just a coincidence? Or is there a pattern? Is there something we can learn here when, when Moses says, you must study all the ways that he led you? Is this one of the ways that God would lead us? I would propose that it is. Jesus was living out what the Israelites had lived out. This number 40 in scripture is the number of testing. It's a number where God tests the heart. And they go through that situation where God is dealing with the human heart. And the picture of the wilderness in scripture is the same scenario. Theologians talk about the wilderness motif. In other words, it's a, it's a sim, there's symbolism in that idea of the wilderness. And if you go to the Middle East, you can see it geographically. Topography, uh, the, the Middle Eastern topography is this. And especially in ancient times, you would have oases that were built. You'd have cities and oases built around water sources. And between these water sources were vast expanses called wilderness. And the wilderness was not a place you would go to. It was a place you would pass through to get to another oasis. And the picture is this. That God, the wilderness experience in our life is not a habitation. It's not a destination for you. It's a pass through. But you and I get to decide how much time we spend there. The Israelites spent 40 years. Jesus spent 40 days. Which do you want They say it was an 11-year journey from Egypt to the promised land, but they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience. And so there's this picture for you and I of a wilderness experience. God will take you into the wilderness. Matter of fact, there's been uh, research in, in recent years about this whole idea of the wilderness. In ancient times, they looked at the wilderness as the habitation of evil spirits and jackals. And it was a a place where you would face trial. It was an uninhabitable place. It was the idea in the ancient mind. And uh, there's been documents and, and writings that have been unearthed in the last 50, 60 years that even in other cultures other than the Hebrew culture, that's been uncovered, that that's how they looked at that. And being in that part of the earth... They would borrow from that terminology and it was a picture and the the landscape really was like that. They would have to rough it out to go through the wilderness to get to the next oasis. And God picks up on this picture in his word for you and I to realize that in going from where we are to where we need to be, the transition 
There are transition moments in your life where you are stepping into new things. That there are wilderness experiences. And it's a time of testing of your identity and head games and the enemy messing with you. And it's a good time to fast. Because fasting can be an usher to bring you into the new season in your life. It's not a coincidence that Jesus fasted 40 days before he entered ministry. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus quotes this. Listen to what Deuteronomy 8 says, verse 3. And he humbled you. This is Moses telling the Israelites, this is what God did to you, did for you, depending on your perspective. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Why? That he might make you know, and here's the phrase, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so Jesus lifts this principle out and quotes it to the enemy when the enemy tells him, turn this stone into bread. Satisfy your hunger. And Jesus rebukes him and quotes this verse. What I find interesting is that Jesus is at the end of a 40-day fast. He's hungry. He's about ready to break his fast, but he refuses to break it at the enemy's prompting. And he quotes this verse, but this verse in Deuteronomy 8, it says that God led them to be hungry, and then he did feed them something. They weren't on a total fast. They lived on this diet of this thing called manna. Literally, it meant in Hebrew, what is it? So it was like it was little wafers that tasted a little like honey. And it would show up on the ground every morning. And they would go out and they would gather just enough for that day. And the next day, they would have to pick it up again. And if they tried to keep it overnight, it would become moldy. And on the, sa- the night before the Sabbath, they would grab extra. And that day, it would last an extra day. And they lived off of this manna. And and scripture says the reason God did that, he caused them to hunger, he awakened to hunger in their heart and then provided something to satisfy them. And he did this so that they would know that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's implying that manna was a form of the word of the Lord for their life. It was by the word of the Lord that he fed them, but it was a form of the word of the Lord. And you've probably heard sermons on that, and rightly so. That you can't live off of yesterday's revelation. You need a fresh word from the Lord daily. If you look at the rest of this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 8, the warning was in respect to the children of Israel entering into a promised land that had abundance, that they would have tremendous prosperity. They would begin to enjoy a prosperity they didn't know. The picture is that in, in Egypt, under slavery, they didn't even have enough. In the wilderness, they had just enough, just enough for that day. And the next day, they needed to get more. And the next day, and every day, they had to go back and they had to gather the manna. But they were coming into the promised land, which was a place of more than enough. 
But God was cautioning them. He was trying to discipline their soul because he was concerned, if you read the rest of this passage, that when they prosper, and this is reiterated by God several times in the Pentateuch, that when you prosper, one time it even says, when you prosper and you forget me. Because God knows the human soul, our tendency, when times are good, that we, we no longer continue to go to him. I don't know about you, but I want, I had a friend that used, there's, there's a, uh, I want to say it's in Proverbs 30, I want to say it's Proverbs 30. It says, Lord, do not prosper me so that I forget you, but don't give me too little that I am tempted to steal. Give me just enough to get by. That's a paraphrase. And I had a dear friend that used to pray that all the time. And he said, that's, that's my prayer. I said, not me. I want to pray, God, give me the character that can handle the whole bunch and give it to me. And I'm not joking. I'm serious. God wants to, God will give you what you can handle. But he was concerned with the children of Israel. So he took them through this time of the wilderness to make them dependent upon him. He created a hunger in them, then became the answer to their hunger. So that they would develop a dependency upon him. And that was going to prepare them for great blessing. Because they were about ready to come into the promised land. They were going to harvest fields they didn't till. Live in houses they didn't build. And so they needed a time of deprivation. A time of the wilderness where God was dealing with them. We jump to the New Testament and we see Jesus entering into that same scenario. Where Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested of the enemy. And the enemy challenges his identity and tempts him to eat, to, to use his, his power to manufacture a miracle to validate his own identity, to use ministry as personal validation. And Jesus refuses. And he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What am I saying? Fasting is a way not only to volunteer for transition, volunteer for the deep dealings of God, but and actually initiate that process. When you fast... You can initiate the process by which you move in to the next season of your life. Jesus was led by the Spirit, but he was willing to follow. And often our greatest breakthroughs, the breaking into the next season before we break in, often there's an impartation, there's an encounter, there's an experience, there's a word, there's a promise you receive, and there's great excitement followed by tremendous challenge to that very thing. And if we understand that, if we'll endure those times and keep our faith and use that opportunity to really throw ourselves on God, which by the way is what fasting is all about. Fasting is saying, God, I'm more hungry for you than I am for food. Lord, I'm going to set this aside right now and I'm going to throw myself on you. I'm asking you for insight. I'm asking you for revelation. One of the keys to revelation, there are several keys to being a revelatory person, to being a person uh, that, that the Bible comes alive to you. 
One of them is just being faithful and getting in the word. God can't speak to you from the word if you're not in the word. But another part of that is having a pure heart, doing it for the right reasons. The pure in heart shall see. The pure in heart shall see God on every page. John chapter 7, the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, where did you get such teaching? They were saying, how did you get such revelation from the Old Testament? And Jesus answers them and when he does, I'm sure they were thinking, that's not what we were asking. But they didn't catch it. He really was answering their question. This was his answer. I want to say it's, it's John 7. It's either John 7 or 8. He says, I came not to please myself, but the one who sent me. And they're thinking, well, I, I wasn't wondering about your source. I was wondering, or not your motive. I wasn't wondering about your motive. I was wondering about your source. Where are you getting this teaching? And Jesus was essentially saying this. The secret of my source is my motive. I'm here to please the Father, not to glorify myself. That is the essence of New Testament purity. When you look in the New Testament, that word pure in heart, purity of heart, that is what it means. It, it, it's about pure motives, about singular focus. That's why James says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's those people that are pursuing two different things and God wants to purify our heart. And part of fasting is so that God can deal with us and purify our hearts. And I'm telling you this morning that if you will go into this fast with that attitude and say, God, I really want you to purify my hearts, my heart. I want you to show me things that are hidden in my heart that I'm not aware of. So what it said he did with the Israelites. That God will take you at your word and begin to deal with those things so he can give you revelation. It's clear in scripture. Sometimes revelation comes through fasting. Look at Daniel. What we call the Daniel fast 21 days was a fast for revelation. Daniel had bumped up against something that wasn't making sense to him. He knew there was a prophetic word that 70 years of captivity and then they would be set free. They were coming up on that, that time and it wasn't making sense. There was something, the dots weren't connecting theologically. So what did he do? Did he get offended? Did he complain? No. He went on a fast and began to cry out, which resulted in an angelic visitation and God giving him insight into what was really going on. It, he got revelation through a messenger from God. And God wants to give us revelation. He wants to instruct us. He wants to give us our marching orders for the next year. During worship, Kate McGovern texted me. I want to read you this. She said, Proverbs 16.9, we make our plans, but the Lord determines our step. I keep hearing the Holy Spirit saying, my people need direction. And they must look up to me and trust me and not be dismayed. But keep their eyes on me and they will not miss it. I believe that is a word from the Lord and I believe it's connected to the fast. I believe the Lord wants to give us fresh marching orders. I believe there's a transition that's going on. Sometimes your transition is precipitated by great frustration. Because you know there's something more. It's like God has birthed a hunger within you that's not being satisfied. It's not that you're apathetic because you are hungry, but you haven't entered into the reality of that thing yet. And that creates frustration. 
And God will use that to fuel us in intercession and fasting. And I believe that we're, I believe that we're in a hinge moment in human history. I really do. I believe that's true for this church, but I believe it's true for the global church. I believe it's true for the human race. I believe that when we get on the other side of the craziness that we've been going through these last few years, and I don't believe, I believe we're in the thick of it. We're not at the end of it. That's just my personal opinion. I'm not saying thus saith the Lord. I'm just telling you what I sense. I believe we get on the other side of this thing and the landscape is gonna look completely different. And we will look at, back at this as one of the most monumental changes in human history. But what it will look like when it's all said and done is still in the balances. And it's in the hands of the intercessors and those who through fasting and prayer will shape history. So those transition times, we, we need to allow that frustration to build and vent it towards God and cry out. Romans chapter 8 says, we have been subjected to frustration. Frustration is really that unique mixture of hunger and hope. It's hunger for more. I, I need to have more. I'm not satisfied with what I have, but I have hope there is more. If all you have is hunger but no hope, you'll get, you'll get offended. If all you have is hope but no hunger, you're going to be apathetic. Ah, it's going to happen anyway. But the Lord will create that tension in your life between hunger and hope. That desire for more and, and that hope that there is more but yet you're not satisfied yet. And that creates that frustration. Paul says we're subjected to frustration in hope. And that's where he goes into the whole intercession thing. The spirit intercedes. The, the, uh, the son intercedes. And we intercede with groans in conjunction with the spirit. That frustration that some of you feel is actually an invitation. It's an indication from heaven that you're to partner with him and swing the door of your destiny and to move into the new season. And fasting is a part of that. God wants to give you a fresh word. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 3, or chapter 4 rather. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God loves you enough to orchestrate your life to create a dependence on his word. We can volunteer for that and make it easier. Or we can fight it and God will pull us there. That's the difference between the 40 days and the 40 years. The length of the hallway of your transition is determined by your willingness, your obedience, your getting with the program. Some of you, there is a frustration in your life. There is a desire. There is a hunger in your life. It's too late. You're already in the hallway. There is no turning back. God has ruined you for what was. That's a good thing. But you need to throw yourself into this thing and ask the Lord to do a work. 
God's inviting us into this fast. And I want to encourage you. You know, there's years where a lot of people jump in on the fast and there's years where not so many. And I I really can never tell. It's not like people wear a shirt. I'm one that's fasting or I'm one that's not. But there are times where there's more engagement than others and it's obvious. And I, I really, I implore you as your pastor, ask the Lord what he would have you to do. And I would encourage every one of you to do something. And let's set aside these, the, 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 the next three weeks, not tomorrow, but the next week on that Monday, let's venture into three weeks of setting aside for God and beginning to go to him every day for fresh manna. God wants you to live by the word of God. He wants that to be your strength, your sustenance. I've told you this story before, but when I, when I was in Teen Challenge, I was, I was a very, very insecure young man. That's why I drank so much. So when I got saved, I remember thinking, this is great. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to heaven, but I'll be mute till I get there. I couldn't, couldn't talk to people. I was, I was just full of insecurities. And there was a man of God, Lou Selzer, who worked there. And he said, I want you to go and ask the Lord. The Lord told me to tell you, 2 Corinthians 12 is for you. Go ask him what this verse means. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So I went and asked the Lord. I I began to pray about it. And I prayed and prayed. And I was very excited because for the first time in my life, I could say, I know God spoke to me. And he showed me a picture of a cup, of a glass And it was full of water, just almost to the top. And then there was another one, and there was only a little water in the bottom. And he told me, you're the second glass. You've got very little strength in you. He said, but because of that, there's a whole lot more room for me to move. That he can pour his strength into me. That encouraged me. He didn't have to tell me I had very little in me. I already knew that. I was painfully aware. But what he was saying is my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And if you'll offer that weakness to me, I will fill it up with me. When I went to Bible school, I would get up every morning and I'd spend an hour and a half, two hours with the Lord. I'd get up at 4 a.m. and uh, spend time with the Lord and then open the daycare for the school. And then we'd go to class And uh, I would have to pray through just to go around people. Literally, I would have to get a word from the Lord just to go around people. I I had leaned on alcohol. It was like I had this whole portion of my personality taken from me and I had nothing to lean on. And so I had to go to the word. And one of, I can't say it's a regret, one of the, I long for those days Because God in his grace helped me to grow up and develop socially like normal people. Some of you are saying, no, you're not, Pastor. Well, I'm close. Grow up and fill in that gap that I missed because I lived in a drug-induced stupor all those years. And I can get up and go around people without getting a word from the Lord now. And so fasting is a way I can go to the Lord and say, God, I'm going to make myself weak. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to initiate this process. And I'm asking you, God, speak to me again.
I want to realize that man does not live by bread alone. There is a danger in Western prosperity that God warned the Israelites of. And I would add to that, there is a danger even in a level of Christian maturity because you learn how to do it on your own. And that's a good thing, but it can be a bad thing. Because we can become distracted and no longer be that person that every morning we've got to get a word from the Lord. Man, I remember during those days where I would just be, I'd I'd be having anxiety attacks and I would go sneak behind the baptismal at this Bible school I was at and I would just cry out to God until he gave me a verse. There were times where I, out of my spirit, I'd begin to, I would begin to say these words and it strengthened me and I didn't even know it was a Bible verse. Later on, I discovered it in the word. But it was like the word was strengthening me. He was like something to, to give me strength to face another day. I want to be addicted to the word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God longs to give you a word. He longs to pour his strength into you. But you've got to Find that place of weakness and stubbornly park it right in front of him. And if you don't know of a weakness in your life, make one. Skip some meals. I'll tell you, you'll find some weaknesses. But let's go after this thing. Let's ask the Lord, God, what would you have me to do during these three weeks? And let's set this time aside for the Lord and ask him to begin to deal with us. I believe there's something for us as individuals And there's something for us corporately. Amen? All right. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, Lord, I thank you for each and every one of these. Lord, we ask for a special blessing for those who drove in. Lord, yes, bless those on YouTube too. But Father, I ask God that you would use this word this morning to dig deep. Begin to turn over the soil of our heart, Lord. Create a hunger. God, I ask, Lord, for a release of holy frustration, divine dissatisfaction, sprinkled with hope that things can change. Lord, create that frustration within us. Let it be the fuel of intercession. Some of you this morning, what you need is hope, and some of you need hunger. Some of you are in despair and some of you are struggling with apathy. But the tension between those two is that holy frustration that presses us in. And so, Lord, we're asking, God, that those that are struggling with apathy, Lord, that you would go deep and begin to deal with that. God, awaken a hunger. And, Lord, those those who are lacking hope and struggling with despair, Lord, I ask that you would give your word to them, Lord, that you would awaken hope. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.